This is Sustainable Conversations on the Broom Wagon, brought to you by the Broom Wagon Podcast. Because despite by thinking that we are all superheroes fueled up with jelly candies and raw food, there is still a lot of pollution around the bicycle world. Stefano, aka Calamaro, and Andrea, full-time nerd, are going to talk with the champions of bicycle sustainability. Sit down, listen to it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number three of the Sustainable Conversations on the Broom Wagon. How did you like it till now? I think it was great, and thanks a lot for all the feedback that I received and all the feedback that we received on all our channel. Maybe just remember it for a bit. So, Calamaro CC on the Instagram is directly myself. Broom Wagon Club is a bit more the umbrella of all the organization, all the things that we're doing with the Broom Wagon. Or Andrea underscore Maracarne is the Instagram of Andrea. Or if you want to send us an email, hello at calamaro.cc. That's the email where you are going to get some answers over there. Talking about feedback, I really, really, really was stoked about the mention that we got from the newsletter of Shift Cycling Culture. You know Shift Cycling Culture, right? If you don't know it, just go on the Google and find it out. It's an association who is trying to keep our eyes, their eyes, everybody's eyes, everybody in the bicycle industry eyes that are not completely aware on how sustainable, how not sustainable is actually the bicycle world. More or less the same goal that we have here. And they know as well that they're preparing a feedback talking about same topics as ours. So keep your eye peeled, as I was saying, and try to check it out because they will do amazing stuff. And thanks a lot for Shift Side to Shift Second Culture for mentioning us on that. So the first two episodes were really stoked and uh, Everybody really gave us huge acts, huge appreciation after our episodes with the guys, Adam and Chris from Rebel and Oli from Morvelo and the Overland. But what about today? Today was a recording that it was really amazing. I think that I recorded more or less three hours and a half in total. I shrinked it down still on a super, super long episode, but awesome one. And then talking about Chris King. Yes, Chris King is doing what he's doing. I mean, everything related to bearings, headsets, bottom brackets, hubs for your wheels since ages. And he did it with a huge idea in mind. And I'm talking about doing everything in order to be sustainable for the environment, sustainable for the workers, and also sustainable for the business. So I will leave you here because it's going to be a long, long, long one. Feel free to kind of split it and listening in several tranches. But for now, I'm going to leave you here and I will talk to you at the end, being super, super, super quick at the end. Bell, we are here in another of these sustainable conversation on the broom wagon. And I can tell you that today I'm pretty, pretty, pretty honored of having the guest that we have for two reasons. Why? Because it's a great example for the industry, talking about environmental friendly and sustainability and everything. Two, because it's a super well-known name into the industry. That's another thing. And third thing, because we are talking in person here and I have him having him on screen. So, hi, Chris. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? We are doing super, super, super good. When I talk about Chris, maybe Andrea can say that because it was his, it was his idea, actually, to interview you, Chris. <laughs> what Chris are we talking about, Andrea? Uh, well, it's, uh, it's Chris King. Uh, so, I guess everybody knows, it, uh, knows him. Uh, and, yeah, doesn't need a lot of presentation or introductions. <laughs> 
I believe. I don't know. I still believe that probably Chris can give us a short introduction about himself. Well, uh, I've been making high quality bicycle components for over 40 years now, 44 years now. Um, and, you know, I, I guess one of the reasons we're here is to talk about how sustainability fits into, you know, the bike industry and making bike components and so on and so forth. And so I've had a long history, long, long history with that. Uh, ever since I started, in fact, since since that was back in the seventies, um, and you know, to to try and encourage more consciousness in uh, that direction. Well, I will start from here then, Chris, and I want to ask you something like, why you started this awesome company in the bicycle industry, and why the sustainability topic and sustainable production was really on the foundation of all the company that you build up, all the business that you build up? Well, once again, it's, it's been a long, a long journey. And uh, getting started, I didn't set out specifically to build a bicycle component company. Uh, you know, starting as a, a young man, pretty much just out of school, I just, I was a, a machinist at the time, and um, I was good at making things with my hands, and I liked doing that. So my first thought was to, I had actually built some prototype components, headset primarily, uh, back when I was still working in one of my prototyping jobs, I was working for a medical instrument uh, builder, the, uh, one of the first companies building air-powered uh, tools for surgery. And so I had done some on the lunch times and break times. I'd you know made some stuff for myself since I was into cycling. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I left that job and decided I was going to try and go into business for myself just to do machine work um, on contract basis, right? So in other words, if you have a part, you can bring me your drawing and I can make it for you or I can tell you how much it's going to cost to make a thousand of them or something like that and, and do that. That was contract machine work is what we would call that. So that's kind of where I got started. But at the same time, I wanted to make a bicycle component. I knew that at that time, this is 1976, uh, in the United States, cycling wasn't huge by any means. Um, I mean, of course, there were plenty of bicycles under people's Christmas trees, you know, that kind of stuff for kids, but not actual cycling, you know, so the at best, we had amateur racing and a little bit of touring and, and those kinds of things. But when you think about what kind of market there was to introduce a high-quality component, um, it was pretty limited. There was really, I knew at that time, there was no way I could make a living just making bicycle parts. So the contract machine work, part of it was the main the main thing that I set out to do is about ultimately over the next 11 years that I did the contract shop, 
it generally was 80% of what I did. 20% making the bike parts and 80% just doing contract work. And that, that's basically how I survived through that period. In the, in the course of doing that, um, you know, I made the, the first sealed bearing headset um, with high quality bearings and such. It was a popular product, but like I said, you know, when you think about what kind of bikes in those days, we didn't really, it was really just the beginning of mountain bikes. Um, so there was really nothing, you know, there was really no market in that kind of uh, use. So it was primarily road bikes. And if you think about the, the top quality road bikes that were being ridden at the time, most of them were racer bikes. And, and the racers in America were primarily amateurs, uh, generally college students, starving college students that had no money to pay for anything. So, you know, spending money on expensive bicycles, you know, they were generally looking for sponsorships and things like that. So um, it was it was a challenging time to try and sell stuff. But, you know, there there were people and I still had sets. I actually... The, the, in 1977, when I made my first production of headsets, which was probably about a hundred of them, uh, I set out on a road trip and drove all the way across the United States to the far east coast to, to Maine and back again. And uh, as we say in, in America, we have this person, it was called Johnny Appleseed, right? That, that, went across the country and, and spread apple seeds everywhere so people would have apples. So I did kind of the same thing with the headsets. I visited a lot of little shops along the way, all the way across the country and back, and uh, you know showed them the headsets. I, they were basically in little plastic bags, like a sandwich bag, right? Yeah. But people used them, and you know they liked them. So that's pretty much how I got my business started with selling bike components. Um, over the next five to 10 years, you know, they, they worked so well that the people that bought them were so thrilled that it, it got to be kind of almost a cult-like following. People that used them really believed them. And, and the people that didn't really know about them were like, wow, that's, that's a really expensive headset. Why, you know, why would you want something like that? It was about the same price as a campy record headset in those days. Okay. So, you know, I was comparing myself, uh, you know, one of my inspirations, of course, was Campignolo. Um, and I wanted to make a product that was at least equal to the quality that they made. Perfect. Perfect. And then... The sustainability in production also came together with it, right? This was into your mind since the beginning. So, you know, having grown up in the in the 70s, you know, school, I finished school in the early 70s. This was kind of the, I don't want to say tail end, but it was kind of the, the latter part of the hippie era in, in America. And... During that early part of the 70s is when a lot of the environmental movements got started. We're talking about Greenpeace and tree huggers and all that kind of thing. Organic food, uh, which you call bio there. Um, yeah. 
all of that really got started in the early 70s. And I was part of that. I was in, I was in that cultural group that uh, living in Santa Barbara, California, that was that was actually one of the locations of the beginning of the environmental movement. They had a um, a big oil spill with some drilling platforms off the off the coast that wound up spreading oil all over the beaches in Santa Barbara, and it became a big focal point of how the oil industry didn't really care about the environment and there were people demonstrating and a group called Get Oil Out formed and it like I said it, it kind of became one of the beginning points of the environmental movement so I was all part of that you know that was that was my early adulthood through that whole period where people were really starting to focus on how much damage was being done to the environment by all kinds of different sources. So I wanted to, in thinking about doing business for myself, I wanted to make sure that, you know, I was not contributing to the demise of the, of the world. You know, it was something that I knew how to do. And I thought, well, if I can actually use my skills in manufacturing to produce something that was sensible from an environmental standpoint, bicycle transportation being a pretty sensible thing compared to automobiles and all that kind of thing. I thought that that was a worthwhile endeavor uh, to focus myself at. It's just in the early years, like I said, you know, I couldn't really make a living just making bicycle parts. So I did what I could to survive and produced the parts, like I said, it was about 20% of what I did for a lot of years, uh, till I got to a point where, you know, I, I got kind of a lucky break in the late 80s when mountain bikes got really popular. Uh, the only thing that, you know, w when bike companies were starting to produce production mountain bikes, there weren't really any mountain bike components. So they used what they had, which was, you know, cheap road stuff, and <laughs> they just didn't hold up very long. And I remember, in some cases, headsets on mountain bikes in the, like, 87 or so, they would last one or two rides. Wow. So the people that had were familiar with my product, my headset at that time, from riding road bikes they started putting them on their mountain bikes and it, and it worked, it worked really well, in fact. So the popularity started really skyrocketing. And uh, I had sold my contract shop to one of my customers and kept the bicycle part out of that, you know, the bicycle production stuff out of that and kept a few couple of machines and rented a little space in a friend's shop and continued to make the headset on the weekends, going into work, you know, 20 hours a week, 20 hours a weekend just to make bike parts. And then my day job during the week, running the uh, contract shop for this other medical place. So by 1991, I guess it was, 1990, 91, um, it had gotten so busy that I decided just to go back into business making bicycle pro products. And there was enough business at that time to sustain myself. So that's what I've been doing ever since. The environmental part of it 
is that, you know, I always tried to do responsible things as far as how we did manufacturing. Um, one of the first things in that was thinking about, well, what is it that I'm going to be making? And is it something that's just a throwaway item or not? I did not want to make a throwaway item. I wanted to make something that was going to last a really long time so that, you know, its life would make a lot of sense from a responsibility standpoint. So that's primarily the, the initial focus. Uh, but as the years went by, we were able to do more and more responsible things when it came to manufacturing, the actual manufacturing of that. How, how, how did you come up? I mean, I, I was reading some, some stuff about uh, how do you manufacture stuff and, uh, you know, how, how this is sustainable, right? And I, uh, I read this, uh, this interview that, that you did for, uh, I guess it was Bike Mag. Uh, in which you explain a bit uh, how did you come up with the idea of using uh, veggie oil rather than um, mineral oil to to cool down the the machines, right? Yeah. And I mean, I, I I'm wondering, like, how 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 did you come up with the idea? Within the world of manufacturing and cutting metal. Uh, generally there's some kind of fluid used to keep the cutting cool, right? It's not just the machine, but the actual cutting process. It's like lubricate the cutting process and then pull the heat away so the tools stay sharper. Uh, you know, when I first started, the main thing that was used was this oil that you'd mix with water uh, called soluble oil, and it had an emulsifier in it, so it would stay mixed, and it would make this milky, white-looking fluid that was 80% water, 90% water, and that's, you know, that's the primary thing that was used, and the, the reason that that was like that is the primary uh, function was to pull heat away and water has a heat capacity that's much higher than just straight oil. Not that straight oils weren't used, it really depended on what kind of manufacturing process you were talking about, because there were definitely places where you had to use straight oil. But for the, for the most part, doing CNC machining, generally all those machines ran with water-soluble fluids. And the problem was is that the oil, the oil was there to add some lubricity to the, the fluid. In the machines, the, the, there's a stump in the machines where this stuff would sit and get pumped from, and then it would go back or just recirculate it. Uh, it was usually built into the machine somehow, and the machines would warm up as you're using them, of course. So the stumps, the sumps would stay at a temperature that was perfect for incubating bacteria. And what would happen is the bacteria would feed on the oil, the fat in the oil, and it would spoil this fluid. When that happened, it would cause the, the oil to go out of the tension, separate, would form a film across the top of the sump, and then the, the bacteria underneath it in the water would start going anaerobic. And when it goes anaerobic or it's you know, suffer, uh, uh, suffocating with no oxygen, the byproduct of that 
is acid and methane and a bunch of foul things that start smelling like a septic tank. All right. All of that can damage the machine once you start trying to circulate that stuff. Like as you machine during the week, every morning there might be a little bit, but when Friday comes and it's the machine's going to be sitting undisturbed for two days in that nice warm temperature by Monday morning, it's it's pretty nasty. So I wanted to that actually damages the machine if you start circulating that stuff because of the acid that forms in it. And that acid can get into the bearings and so on and so forth. So the other thing that happens is the people that make those oil products that you mix with water, of course, they knew this was a problem. So they would add fungicides and biocides uh, to kill that, keep that stuff from growing, bactericides. So when you were using the machine and you were machining with it, of course, it's steaming and so on. You're actually, every time you open the door to get your parts out, you're actually breathing this stuff. This, of course, was a huge concern to me because of my health-oriented background, environment-oriented background, having poisons in this gas that you get to breathe. This is no good, right? So I wanted to be able to eliminate that at the same time that I got rid of the problem of it damaging machines. Probably about 1989 or so, I started switched everything to just use straight mineral oil with no additives in it. So if you got it hot, you weren't going to be uh, uh, vaporizing any unnecessary things in the oil, like sulfur or something like that. So the whole point was to try and minimize what the operators of the machines would be breathing as they're operating during the day. The other, the, the lesser important thing, but once again, still important was the life of the machines. So the mineral oil pretty much satisfied that pretty well. And we used that successfully for years until we ultimately, we wanted to be able to do something even more responsible than that. Uh, back in the late 80s, nobody was really talking about carbon footprint, if you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That concept hadn't even become aware of yet. Uh, so once once we started thinking about renewable sources of things and carbon footprint, um, neutral carbon footprint, finding an oil that was not of petroleum base became kind of a goal. And we ultimately were able to source a soybean oil out of the Midwest here in the United States. Uh, by a small farmer producer that would satisfy that that goal, right? <clears throat> Ultimately, that company got bought by a bigger company and it went from soybean oil to canola oil. But in the long run, we were able to replace the mineral oil with a vegetable-based oil, canola oil in this this case. I, I, I believe in Europe, it's called rapeseed oil. Yeah, It came at a bit of a premium, but we actually got a little bit better performance out of the vegetable-based oil because it's actually slipperier than uh, petroleum oil. And um, since it was vegetable-based, any of the other issues that we had with 
you know, people getting it on their hands or in some cases, people were sensitive to having uh, petroleum oil on their hands or even breathing some of those fumes. Uh, the vegetable oil pretty much took care of the rest of that. So the biggest issue was the expense of using straight oil. And ultimately, it was about 10, 12% more expensive to use the vegetable oil instead of the mineral oil. We had to go through uh, really perfecting our recovery process to make sure that we weren't throwing a lot of that oil away on all of the shaving. So we ultimately developed a system for doing that as well. But I think that's uh, another thing on your list, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've heard that, uh, that, that you use... I mean, that, that you kind of recycle a machine to uh, squeeze the oil out from the chips. You know, back when we were using the water-based product, since you only have about 5% oil in the water, um, you don't, you're not really too worried about oil loss or whatever. It's mostly just water that's on the, on the shavings uh, that go by. And those are easy to drain. And generally speaking, by the time you take them out of the machine, they're fairly drained. So you, no one ever even thought about that. But when we went to straight oil, this is a whole different story. Uh, the chips that came out of the machines were still, you know, oily. So the first thing that we developed were some uh, roll around shallow buckets that we would stick the giant cans on that we held the chips in. And we poked holes in the bottom of those cans so the chips would, as we threw them into the can, they would actually drain and they would be caught by this bucket underneath. We would then, you know, dump that bucket back into the machine, right? The longer that the chips could sit and drain, the more oil we got off them. So if they could actually sit for a couple of weeks, we would actually get, we would fill these pans. So it was probably uh, about 30 liters of oil would come off one keg of, of chips, right? Um, the problem as we got further and further into more and more popularity making the product and we were making more and more of it, the number of cans of chips per day that we were producing and then having to sit to the side for two weeks just became this, it, it was a space that would take up as much room as we had all the machines. In. So this was, uh, it got to be a pretty impractical thing. So we had to look for something that would take the place of, of just letting the chips sit for sit and drain. And that was essentially the industrial version of a trash compactor. So uh, a machine that you could dump all the chips into and it would auger them into a big piston and crush it into a puck. The puck was uh, about 100 millimeters in diameter and 50 millimeters thick, but it would essentially crush all those loose curly chips down into this solid. And in the process of doing that, use about 200 tons of force to do that, it would, I mean, our main goal was just to reduce the amount of volume that all these chips would take, right? 
Mm-hmm. And we knew that we were going to get some kind of recovery of the oil, but we had no idea how good that was going to be. When you crush this thing into this puck, we were actually recovering over 90% of the oil that was residual on chips. And that would get that would drain off into a pan, and then we'd take that and put it through a centrifuge to filter it. And then once again, put it right back into the machines. So that... When we first started using that machine, we spent about $60,000 buying this machine. It was used. Uh, The payment on that was about $500 a month. Um, The first month that we used it, we recovered over a barrel of oil. And at that time, a barrel of oil, this was the mineral oil that we started with, right? At that time, a barrel of oil was costing us about 500 bucks. So instantly we were paying for this. Yeah. Right. So when you talk about return on investment, right? This is a no brainer. I'm going to buy a $60,000 machine to save me 500 bucks a month in oil. As we got more productive and we started consuming more oil, making more chips we were recovering more oil in the same amount of time it wasn't long before we were recovering two barrels of oil per month and right now we recover about four barrels of oil a month the price of oil now has gone up substantially and when we moved to the canola oil it went up another 10 or 15 percent so right now a barrel of oil is probably about 1300 dollars whoa Yeah. And so, and we're recovering about four of those. The machine's long been paid for. (laughs) Of course. Yeah, definitely. The the net return on this is kind of crazy, even just from a financial standpoint. You're not even talking about the environmental impact of all this stuff, but just from a, a, a number standpoint, I don't know how you couldn't do this. We don't have any disposal problems. Once again, going back to the water-based materials, when those things start going bad, you can't really use them anymore because they'll mess your machines up. They've lost their lubricity, so they don't really work so well. What do you do with them? You can't send them down the drain, so you have to dispose of them somehow. And generally, that disposal is hazardous waste. Where does it go? Some, in some cases, it's incinerated, but it, it becomes this whole loop. Uh, the waste stream beyond the factory becomes a whole nother issue, right? So this was another one of the things that we wanted to eliminate was the waste stream that was constantly going out of the shop of this spent material. Using straight oil, and especially the vegetable oil, we don't have any waste stream on this. There's a little bit of film that, or residual film that's left on the chips. It's vegetable oil, so it's biodegradable. It gets essentially incinerated in the chip recovery, the melting of the chips. It winds up incinerating in that process and actually helps the, um, the firing or the heat of that process. So we killed a lot of birds with one stone, right? Uh, we eliminated a waste stream. We essentially uh, improved our environmental 
footprint inside our manufacturing facility. So in other words, the, the operator's environment running the machine improved dramatically because now it's just vegetable oil. We actually get better finishes on everything that we're producing because it's slipperier, it works better. Um, because oil has a little bit less heat capacity than water, you can't spin quite as fast, but you, because it's slipperier, you can push harder. So the net loss of machining efficiency is almost zero, but you, it's different. You have to learn how to use it, but you can get pretty much back where you were. So over the years, we figured all that stuff out. But a, a technical question. I mean, uh, each capacity is not the same thing as smoking point, right? No. Because, I mean, of course, the smoking point of the oil is higher than the one of the water, right? Yes. So what are yeah. we talking about when we talk about heat capacity? Heat capacity is the ability of a mass of material to absorb energy. Okay. How fast can it absorb energy and how much energy can it absorb? So water absorbs the energy about twice as fast as oil does. All right. So you don't, you don't have to use as much of it and you can pull more heat away faster. So... Oil, if you use oil, you can't remove the heat quite as fast or you have to flow, circulate more of it at a time to get some similar net effect. So generally, when you spin your tool or spin your part, the faster you spin it, the more heat it's going to make. So if you slow it down a little bit, you're not making as much heat, but you can push a little harder and have a little more metal removal volume you kind of get back to the same place. All right. It actually makes them more recyclable as well. So, I mean, that was another, another piece of this whole process was incorporating the, the crushing machine to, to make the pucks and squeeze the oil out gave us something that was more solid. And this was actually more valuable from a recycling standpoint. We got paid three times as much money per pound or per kilo of that solid than we did of the, the loose shavings. Easier to transport, so it took less volume in, in whatever, how it was going to be transported. Um, and the, the, the net recovery of metal, primarily aluminum, the net recovery was better as well. So all the way around, we were actually recovering more value in scrap selling the scrap to be recycled, that brought in more money as well, which helped pay for, helped offset, you know, the use of this stuff. So, you know, taking a little bit of an environmental bend came along with all these other uh, uh, financial benefits. And can this scale, like, I mean, so if I go buy a machinery for, for do CNC work, normally it uses this, I mean, it's, it, it's it's not running on straight oil normally, is it? No, no. So I, I, I'm wondering uh, why the rest of the industry is not using the same mechanism. Is it because cost less or because they don't care? or? I think that the perception is generally that the water-based fluids work better and cost less. But I believe that they're not considering all of the costs that are involved in using that. So you've got machine life. I mean, we get 
we've gotten at least four times the machine life out of the machines that we would have gotten if we'd used water. All right. If, if you're a manufacturer, you're somebody who runs a manufacturing operation, you're trying to, if you're trying to make money, uh, speed is money. So the faster you can make something, the less time it takes, the more profit you can get out of it. So if you don't look very deep into it, you just take a shallow look, the easiest way to be fast is to use something that allows you to go as fast as possible. And that's the water-based material. Without doing a holistic or a comprehensive analysis of the overall cost of this, especially from an environmental standpoint, you'd never get to this point where you realize that that's not really saving you much. You think it is, but it's not. On the, on the surface, it seems like it is. But when you consider all these other uh, um, costs, all these other passive costs that go into this, that are actually a part of this, that, that, that equation or that, that comparison is, is much closer, if not even better. I have a question about that. Um, still staying on the topic, uh, can it be actually that this perception comes also from the quantity of product that people are producing or the quantity of machinery that company has in their uh, yeah, warehouse and workshop and uh, yeah, production places? Can it be that? Well, because I think, I think from a scalability standpoint, it, it still works. I mean, a small shop can make benefit of this just as much as a big factory can. Um, it's really a matter of how you handle all this stuff. I think that, <clears throat> you know, machine life is machine life. It doesn't matter whether you have one or a hundred. Machining speed, of course, is machining speed. But if you learn how to do it, uh, you cannot suffer there. Um, Yes, there is the handling of crushing the chips that you may not do if you use water because you don't have to wring them out, right? <clears throat> now you've still got the transportation problem because it's, it's fluffier. It's like, it's like transporting feathers, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it doesn't weigh anything, but it takes up a lot of volume, right? So you want efficiency there. Um, plus, like I said, when you compact this stuff, it actually is worth more from a scrap standpoint. So you, you would wind up getting some revenue return on your scrap that would offset the cost of, of pucking it. So it's just more complicated to think about all the things that go into using a material like this, not just your machining speed. But most places don't look very deep into the cost of something. They just look at machining a speed and go, oh, it's messier and I can't go as fast. So I got to use this stuff. I got to use the water. Cool. But I truly believe that actually through these conversations and through actually all the evidences that you are taking out and as well as your B Corp certification and everything, probably this is a way that we can change the perception, right? I think that obviously... Somebody will keep their mind and will keep their idea and keep using water and stuff, but still showing that there is another system that works and probably works better in terms of return of investment, in terms of sustainability and everything is already a good point. I would bet that you, you would probably find some places over there in Europe, especially Switzerland, 
that probably do use this stuff and probably make sense of this. Um, but it's partially driven by the fact that in some cases there are more regulations or controls on your waste streams, right? In other words, what what you get to throw away and 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 how, right? So as that stuff tightens up, these, you know, this uh, vegetable-based machining oil starts making a lot more sense because it's a it's a biodegradable item. It's not got a hazardous waste ticket to it at all. Plus, your your employees are not in in any way you know uh, harmed by the use of this stuff. So you've eliminated all the biocides and fungicides and all that kind of stuff that comes with that other product. That a lot of people never even think about. You know. These kinds of awarenesses of work environment safety are certainly becoming much more critical nowadays than they were 30 years ago. There was really, nobody really cared much about workplace safety 30 years ago or 40 years ago. So the tradition of using these older materials is hard for people to let go of because, well, that's the way we've always done it. But when you start considering all these other things that come into play now, and, and in some cases I got to pay for, these things start making a lot more sense. And we, you know, we just did it because I wanted to have a better work environment for the, the operators. Makes sense. That's where we got started. Save the machines and have a better work environment. And then ultimately it, it started making more and more sense. And next thing you know, we don't have the waste stream to deal with. You know, we started in the in this country, we started putting in requirements for disposal of hazardous waste, um, which really started to run the cost of that up. So people started to have to be aware of some of this, right? But uh, ultimately, some of that got toned back down, and it got a little easier to dispose of some of this stuff. The, the water soluble, uh, it didn't change its impact on the environment. You're still consuming petroleum oil and you still have to dispose of it somewhere, but it, it got a little easier after it got harder. So it's still an issue, it's still a cost, but it's not as much in your face as it was, say, back at the end of the 90s. That's when things got a little tighter. Um, should have produced more people using this, but we didn't have the vegetable oil in the 90s. And like I said, you know, we, had, we actually had to go looking, and we found a small manufacturer in, I think it was Iowa, um, that was producing this stuff and we actually had to buy it directly from him and have and truck it out to portland which added a cost to it but it made so much sense to be able to use that stuff that we we you know bore that cost and uh and were able to to benefit from from those features it'd be great if we use olive oil <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I would think it's a tiny bit expensive at the end of the day, Chris. But it's, it's a little expensive. But, but it smells better. I truly believe it smells better. Yeah, rapeseed oil. That's yeah, okay. I mean, yeah. yeah I mean, uh, uh, the, the only thing that that I was wondering is, I mean, how, how many times can you recycle the 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 canola oil? In a sense, we're not really recycling it. I, I wouldn't want to call it that. 
Um, we just have a reuse loop. So we just keep recovering it and putting it back into use. And the only thing that we have to do is filter some of the, the metal fines out of it. Hmm. So we run it through a centrifuge, which separates the metal fines out of it. And we put it right back into the machine. So, you know, you could call it a recycling process, but it's really not. It's not like when you when you talk about recycling motor oil, that's a whole that's a whole different thing. Right. That's you got stuff, and there's, there's a big process that goes in place. We just recover and and clean it and reuse it. And we do that indefinitely. We are going to nerd here, Andrea. Let's yeah, go sorry, to, sorry, sorry. Yeah, exactly. Here, uh, we don't want to talk about physics and stuff. I will not understand. I study literature, people. Come on. <laughs> Give me a break. Yeah. I can see here from the list, and there is an amazing question that this is not only about normal pollution, but we're talking about noise and sound pollution here. So uh, we all know that uh, your apps are not the quietest in the market. So oh, yeah. do, do, you think, do you think that this has an impact? on like you know noise pollution wait a second i want to just jump into the question before you to answer chris and i'm doing it on purpose i just want to tell a little story here i know at least one friend that i will refer to this one that tells me that says at a certain point oh you know i'm getting a new bicycle i'm getting new wheel set and whatever and actually i decided to go for the chris king hubs because i really need people to listen to my bicycle to me arriving on my bicycle when i'm coming from far away because it's kind of a brand mark and that's what i think it is actually your the sound of your abs are really something that you re can recognize from far away these are chris kings yeah let me i'll tell you a little story so when i started uh, working on building a rear hub the beginning of the project actually used a silent friction clutch. Uh, they call it a roller clutch. And, uh, you know, I worked for a couple of years. I, I really liked the idea of having something that was perfectly quiet. Um, so my goal was always to have a hub that was silent. The problem was, is that the, the, the way that these friction clutches worked I realized ultimately that there would be no way to get it to hold enough uh, torque load to ever be used on a bike without making it weigh, you know, two or three, at least two kilos or something. You had, it was going to wind up getting really heavy in order to work properly. So that's when we switched to the ring drive. And um, that became very efficient from a weight standpoint and a torque load capacity standpoint um, i think that we still have probably the highest practical torque load rating of any hubs out there with the ring drive uh, we've tested ours at over 800 foot pounds of torque um, without failure so it's just funny, you know, when we, so as soon as we went to this, which essentially is a face ratchet uh, concept, of course it was made noise, right? Made some noise. And the, the first prototypes were actually not too bad. Um, 
almost almost silent because of the way that we had structured it inside. But from a production standpoint, we had to change the design design a smidge, which led to them being a little bit noisier. And ultimately, I wanted to be able to solve that with uh, uh, developing a special grease that would have an acoustical property that would quiet it down. And we set into that project as well. <clears throat> Producing ultimately the first things that we had to do was produce a grease that had the right lubricating property. And at the same time, we were trying to produce a grease that was non-toxic and environmentally friendly and all that kind of stuff. And we we did produce that. It, it was expensive to produce and complicated. Um, and the next phase of that development project was to then work on the acoustical property. Um, we never got to that end of it because we started getting a lot of feedback that people liked the sound of the hubs. It's like I, you know, I would tell people, say, yeah, you know, we're going to make them quiet. They're like, no, wait a minute, we like that noise. And ultimately, we just said, well, okay. I mean, you know, we had way more people that liked them making that noise than people that didn't. So we just opted to to leave them like that. There are tricks that you can do to make them a little quieter, but you can you can always put a bit of grease right on the on the poles. So eh, it's not there's no poles, first of all. Um <laughs> or yeah, between the ratchets, I mean. Yeah, between the faces. You can do that. It's you know it's interesting the 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 road version, the R45s that when we designed that new model of hubs we actually did a few things to make them a little quieter um and they and they are so they're a little bit quieter than the mountain hubs but i think when you look at the the market the 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 number of people the number of roadies that were offended by the noise were you know way higher than in mountain bikes so I don't know. I really like actually this conversation and actually it just exploded in a huge laugh because it seems like you're defending your noisy hubs really with all, all the strength that you had in your body. It makes sense. It became really something like a trademark. You know, yeah. the sound of, key, of key, uh, Chris King hubs are these ones. I mean, you can there recognize are not them. many high quality hubs that are actually quiet. No, I mean, they're there are certainly noisier hubs than ours. There's no doubt about that. Already? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, cool. But still, we are talking about how noisy are the hubs for the mountain bike. And I think that this is exactly something like closing the circle of uh, Andrea's question. Uh, did you get any time or whatever, any kind of complaint? Because, I don't know, while going with this noisy tool into a forest, you can actually disturb wildlife or maybe, I don't know, animals sleeping or people sleeping or we you know we've never fielded that comment coming back okay so it means that they're not that it's not so noisy so it's fine no it's not that noisy i mean i i tend to like to call it distinctive right it's a distinctive sound that's um, another branding you, word yeah if you if you <laughs> run them completely dry of course, they are going to be louder, but if you keep them properly maintained, they're not that loud. So there are certainly other more noisy hubs. Now, you know, possibly impacting wildlife. You know, I had, I know that there's a, there's a big 
natural park here in Portland. It's one of the biggest ones in the in the United States. I know I'm acquainted with the chairman of the conservancy that takes care of that park. I and mean, they're not responsible for it, but they like people that protect it, right? Um, they didn't want cyclists in this park riding because they thought that it would be uh, an environmental impact, especially with wildlife. So they had a study done. And the study was to, to, to understand the impact of wildlife habitat by different things that would come into it. So they, they studied bicycles. They also studied bird watchers and hikers. And what they found was that bird watchers, which tend to be much more in their camp, bird watchers are significantly more wildlife habitat impact than a bicycle. And the reason is because they go to a certain spot in, in wildlife, in the, in the habitat, and they just stand there. Mm-hmm. It's the presence the extended time of presence that's the impact, not necessarily the actual thing, right? So the bicycle, on the other hand, zipped through. Yeah. Might have made a little more noise, but it was here and gone so fast that it actually was way less impact than the person just standing there, you know, looking at birds. Uh, if if you have a link on that study, can you please send me over because I got some <laughs> fines in the, in an illegal trail here in Zurich uh, that that I like a lot. But uh, sometimes the police stops us because they say that we disturb uh, wildlife. So if you have a study about that, <laughs> I, I will I will I will present it to to the police next time. Like I said, I was I was informed about this from the uh, the chairperson of this conservancy. They were they were shocked. Right? It was like, oh, well, I guess we can't use that argument anymore. Yeah, I hope I hope that uh, that they will ask someone like this here too, <laughs> because uh, they 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 closed my ferry trail. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, <clears throat> I'll see what I can do. All right, cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, th- there's no question about durability of your products. I mean, uh, I. I believe that uh, I still have uh, a mountain bike that that has an headset from the late 90s somewhere at home, uh, at my parents' place, uh, that didn't need any kind of, you know, bearing replacement. Now, why why are they so durable? Is it because the manufacturing process or, I mean, is it because you have special machinery how do you make bearings that are so indestructible? I'm not going to ask for your patents, right? But <laughs> you know, without giving away any secrets, which there's not anything huge, it's just it's a culmination of a lot of approach on how you you do this. Since we do make our own bearings, we do have complete control over that process and also all the materials, the quality of the materials and everything that goes into that process. Design, seal design, seal materials, the metal that everything's made, all of that stuff we have complete control over. And we, you know, we source the highest quality stuff. 
one, I think getting back to the environmental part of this is that um, we we use domestically produced stainless steel, which you could probably find faults in the production of steel from an environmental standpoint. But in terms of trying to minimize those faults, uh, I think what we have going here in the United States in terms of the controls on production of, of steel, uh, probably the same in Europe, that you have probably the least amount of impact. You've minimized that impact. So there's one thing from choosing the highest quality material just so happens to be this steel that we get here in this country. Uh, we get this benefit of having the, the, the least impact from an environmental standpoint of producing that kind of material. So those two things go hand in hand. It's just, it's a benefit that we get kind of both of those in the same product. Um, if I were producing, uh, if we were making products, then our factory is located in Germany, we would probably be using German steel because of the, the proximity of where it's being produced and transportation and all that kind of thing. And I would assume that that we could have a quality of steel that matches what we're using here. But it would be, it's not cheap stuff. It's the most expensive stuff. Um, it's one of the reasons our products are expensive. It's not, nobody's profiteering on our end, right? We're basically just passing through the cost of all these materials and all of this responsibility that we're taking. So that's selection of materials, I think is a, is a, is an important thing, but also the design uh, of the bearings, uh, the fact that we use, we intended those bearings to be long life. So part of that was to include the ability to service those bearings. So the seals, the way the seals are put on them with uh, removable snap rings and such so that you can get in and service those, those bearings uh, allowed us to use a, a seal technology that was uh, you know, to some bearing manufacturers might seem antiquated, but for the application that we're putting these bearings into on bicycles, it's really ideal. One, that allows us to service these bearings, but two, it provides a very good seal. So we're able to keep uh, debris and uh, contamination out of the bearings better. Um, having the, the high quality materials uh, to, if stuff does get into them, that, that those materials are the most resistance, resistant to those kinds of damages that would be caused. But also in, we get into kind of the, the nuts and bolts of the secret stuff that we do. Um, you know, the, the way that we process those materials into the final bearing in terms of material condition and finish and all that kind of stuff also plays into the longevity of the bearings. Uh, generally speaking, <clears throat> like you said, a headset, we have headset bearings in headsets that have been on bikes and used for 40 years. I mean, you know, we accomplished what we set out to do, which was to not have the bearing be a throwaway item. Cool.
makes a lot of sense. And actually, I would love to touch base on another topic that you slightly touched, uh, yeah, some minutes ago. The different graces that you are producing. Now, I still learn from my uh, master directly, so from Andrea, that there are different greases and different lubricants for different parts of the bike. You were mentioning yeah. before that you have also many of them, and all of them basically are environmentally sustainable. How difficult was to create these kind of products, and how would how do you maintain that? Because at the end of the day, it's not only about what you have in the product yourself, but it's also about, for example, the packaging and everything close to that. Starting from the product and continuing on everything that is around that. What can you tell me on that? You know, to, to be honest, it's difficult to, it's difficult to maintain uh, a good effort on controlling all of these things. I think, you know, lubricants are a challenging subject. We had produced our ring drive material that we used in the bearings and stuff. We spent a lot of time in the 90s developing that material and ultimately had a very difficult time getting anybody to make it for us. We didn't we didn't have the the facilities to be able to blend greases or make greases and stuff um, that's been that was very difficult to to maintain over the years and you it, we've had to actually resort to sourcing grease materials from manufacturers that do this stuff and we try to maintain the most sensibility within those products to to have the right kinds of ingredients with the right kinds of life and stuff i'll give you an example at one point when we started off on the original grease uh, project we had found what we thought was the ideal grease being produced by a manufacturer it was for the food industry mm -hmm. and it was a grease that was used in bearings for uh conveyor systems going through uh, refrigeration, like for handling food moving through a refrigeration system. So it's a low temperature, edible grease, right? Um, it seemed perfect. And when we started actually using and selling this grease, actually, you know, putting it in our products and selling the products, it also had a good biodegradable rating. Um, which we thought, you know, would be an ideal thing as well. Uh, after one season, we quickly found out that there was a problem, that the grease was not holding up. It was, it was becoming less um, viscous, or not viscous, it was becoming less fluid and more solid. Okay. It was changing. It was turning into a solid. Basically, it was getting to be like like spackle. Anyway, um, it took us a little bit to figure out what was going on with that. But just I'm, I'm giving you this as an example that it's it's it can be much more surprising what you have to do in some cases. It's not just face value what you think you can do. Sometimes you find out that you can't go that way. you got to do this because, anyway. 
so the the what was happening is the biodegradation rating on the base oil that was in the grease. Um, grease is just oil mixed with a thickener, by the way. Mm-hmm. So the base oil um, was had a biodegradation rate of its half life was like sixty days. So, and you know, there's a way they measure that. Anyway, this one had a fairly fast biodegradation rate, and yeah. so what we found was the the other part of it was that the thickener was clay. So the thickened system was clay, which is not uncommon, and it's not bad. Um, so the combination of these two things, when you got it into a product, and you then exposed it to environmental contamination creek water okay stream water stream water had biology in it that accelerated the biodegradation rate of the oil so the oil was breaking down in the matter of a couple of months and allowing the clay to become the bigger component of the grease which meant it got too thick okay it caused me to go in the direction of saying look it We've tried to produce a sealed component, but anything that turns is going to be difficult to seal unless it winds up with a lot of drag. So if you want a hub to turn and have a seal on it, chances are it's not going to seal 100%. You're going to wind up with something in your component. So we shifted gears a little bit and said, okay, well, we're going to build the hub so that you could essentially run it with water in it. So that was one of the longevity objectives is to say that we can't avoid contamination. So how can we make it work with contamination and still last? So that's, that's part of what we put into the, the, the product. Bearing the construction all through it and all the materials, everything became stainless steel and all this kind of stuff anyway. But the, the grease was another one of these things where it's like, well, if we want the lubrication to last for six months or a year with contamination in it, can it have a high biodegradation rate? No. So ultimately, we're looking at the grease as, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a, a necessary evil, so to speak. Um, the grease has to perform the function of lubricating and lasting in the product. And you're not necessarily going to get the high environmental impact mitigation with using the proper product. So we look, we look for the best that we can do in, in the materials that go into the greases. But at the same time, the primary need is for the grease to do its job, to do its function. In order to, yeah, in order to maintain the functionality and the performances of the of the component itself. Correct. It becomes kind of the sacrificial thing so that the, the component can live longer. Because the makes sense. The, envir the environmental impact of producing the components way high, higher than the small amount of grease that goes into it. So while we try to maintain the most sensibility with the materials that are going into these greases, they're not always the most perfect environmental thing that we could possibly do. Makes a lot of sense, actually. I really like, actually, this approach 
of taking priorities at a certain point on the things that you are doing. Obviously, because you tried with the material itself, so with the grease, then you try to turn the things around, acting into the component uh, skills in order to live with it. But then at a certain point, priority comes to the component itself. And then the grease should be functional to the long life of it. And it makes a lot of sense. In terms of sustainability, it makes a lot of sense. Yes, and so... so you know, we have a couple of different greases in the line that we sell, and those are aimed at what functions they're producing and which products they go into. An example of the grease that goes into the headset is aimed at long-term stability. So you grease the headset once, you could leave it for 10 years. And, and that's different than what you would put in a hub. The hub has to be serviced more often because it's actually moving more it's consuming the grease, it's getting more contamination in it, all that kind of thing. So, you know, we really took a, lot, a hard look at where exactly was this material going to get used and what job did it need to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, I have another topic, and this is actually, I would love to hear your opinion on that. This is my idea, and yeah. So, um, checking on your website, I know that you have also this campaign, um, that is about supporting the local shops. And that's something that I truly believe it's really common, especially in this period of pandemic and stuff. The second step that I would love to do is, I'm completely, I completely agree with you that supporting your local shop is good in terms of, I don't know, human touch and a lot of other things, and also leaving your neighbors and stuff like this. But I truly believe that it's also a sustainable point because by buying your stuff at a local shop, you can actually get tips, you can have, I don't know, ideas on how to mount and to set up the components that you are buying, to set up your bike, and you are also getting to buy maybe a product that is more durable, better, long time lasting, and all these kind of things, instead of buying the cheapest one. So... In my opinion, this is also an environmental statement. Go to your local shop in order to get experience and also to not waste your money, money in uh, something that is not perfect or also not wasting your money because probably you cannot set up your stuff and you can actually waste a lot of a couple of components before to set up the right one. What's your take on that? What do you think on that? Do you think that this could be actually something that you can share? What's your point on that? Or is just only a thing that is stay close, stay local in order to support all the economy that is close by you? Well, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of factors or a lot of components into this subject. You know, there's, there's the keep things local and support your local community. Everybody, everybody lives on each other. Uh, you know, we are a tribal society. Um, there is, you know, environmental impact to shipping and all these kinds of things. I mean, I think that you could have a person who is technically versed enough to sit at their computer and do their research and figure out exactly what it is they need to buy, buy that online perhaps, have it shipped to them, um, and then do their own work to put it on their bike. There, is, there are people that are very competent at doing that kind of thing. It's not the majority of the population. That's not me for sure, Chris. I can tell you that it's not me. You know, it's a small percentage of the population that has that ability. 
not not to diss anybody, but it's just a fact. It's certainly not the bulk of the people in the bike industry or in the in the bike world, but the bike consuming world, right? So the rest of the people, if you leave them to only be able to get things on the internet, how are they going to get the right thing? So in a way, and especially when you start getting into the more technically involved end of a, a, a thing like the, the bicycle world, right? Um, there is a, a knowledge base that inherently kind of has to come with that. And the average person doesn't have that knowledge base, nor do they have easy access to that. So to help with that, being able to go to your local shop, which is the only practical thing, you're not going to drive, you know, 3000 kilometers to go to some shop. Some people do. Yeah. Okay. Um, but from a practical standpoint, you want to go somewhere local. So you minimize your, your drive impact and all that kind of thing. But you want to be able to access that knowledge base that allows you to enjoy the technology as seamlessly as possible and without loss, without, you know, inefficiency. So the local bike shop is the ideal thing. You know, they, they, house the, the the body of knowledge hopefully um that allows you to access this technology with a high degree of success so you know it's all part of the economy it's all part of people supporting people and and functions and all that kind of thing you know we just happen to have products that sit at the higher end of that or the higher need for that, our, our components, while they're built to last and all that kind of thing, they're not necessarily easy to install. Like a headset used to be, you know, you had to have the right tools and press it in and do all this kind of stuff. Easier now with the drop-in bearings, but still, there is some uh, technical expertise involved in, in doing a good installation of these products. The average person doesn't have those tools or doesn't even necessarily have those mechanical skills to do that kind of thing. They do need some help. Um, we believe that the, the local shops provide this body of knowledge. They provide a body of inspiration for people. Um, you know, I think that, that it's all part of the, the, the bicycle ecosystem, so to speak to have shops, especially shops that do service on bikes. There was a period of time where in the late nineties, a lot of shops started moving away from the service model to just try and make money on just selling new stuff. Right. You know, when you, when you talk about sustainability and, and efficiency with people's spending and so on, you, you don't want to just be replacing stuff all the time. Right. That's, that's expensive. Um, and it's wasteful. So how do you maintain things? A lot of people don't necessarily have the skills or the tool sets to be able to do maintenance. So now we've seen, you know, with the, 
the people being having to be more frugal with their their money uh, because of the way the economy's been in the last ten years, right? And especially now, um, <clears throat> the 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 service component in bike shops has become a much more important thing. There's a lot of shops around Portland that are just service shops. <laughs> That's what they do, right? And I think that from a, a sustainability standpoint, having the ability to do more comprehensive service on your components and on your, your bicycle overall uh, leads to a more responsible footprint. Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Even if when you were describing um, the all the situation with, uh, I don't know, uh, maintaining instead of replacing bicycles every now and then, in my opinion, you described more or less the situation on the, I know, it's the one that I know better, but the situation in the road bike industry seems like everybody's just talking about brands, but also talking about people reflected on that. Seems like the industry of the time wants to drop a new bike, a new model, new colors or whatever to push people on getting their new road bike every couple of years. Well, in my opinion, it's way more important to get something that is durable, something that you can use for a long time with the technology that is up to date, even longer than just a couple of years, instead of inventing new standards and things all the time, more than, as I was saying, introducing new things in order to push up the obsolescence of a bike or at least the feeling of having an obsolete bike just because it doesn't have the right standard or the right colors. In mountain biking, in mountain biking is much worse. Ah, okay. You see? I mean, they, they came up with, uh, I mean, they, come, they constantly come up with uh, different standards. I don't know, like well, uh, name I mean, one, fork offsets, right? Let's, let's take a look at that for a second. When you think about when you think about road bikes, the the engineering evolution in a road bike has been going on for, I don't know, over a hundred years, right? Actually, it started in the 1880s where it really started to, to, to pick up speed, right? Um, so we're talking about 140 years of evolution into essentially road bike. Mountain bikes not anywhere near that amount of evolution. So you could see where mountain bikes are finally kind of settling into what they should have been to begin with, right? Mountain bikes are really good these days in terms of how the geometries and suspension and all this kind of stuff is set up. I'm hoping that we're going to see a little bit of settling down with changing standards and all that kind of thing now that we've had some considerable time to develop mountain bikes. It's been basically since production, production development of mountain bikes has been since about 1985 or so, mid-80s, right? It's mm -hmm. not that many years. Now, I mean, granted, you're still taking advantage of general bicycle technology or bicycle engineering that's been going on for a long time, but the application was much more challenging. That's why we saw early mountain bikes not holding up so well, right? Yeah, I mean... Again, again, we could argue whether, I don't know, Super Boost was absolutely necessary, for instance. Just well, the name one. Well, going on. <laughs> you know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but still, I mean, I think that, that we're seeing that ultimately, I, 
I would expect that if you went back to the late 1800s, you probably saw a bunch of that kind of stuff going on just with bicycles in the first place, right? Ultimately, it settled down. And I think that we're just kind of living through the, the what we call the teething pains of the mountain bikes settling into what they're going to be. I think that we initially saw a splintering into subgroups of the different types of mountain bikes, right? You've got your, you know, free ride and your big hit and your cross country and, you know, enduro. And I mean, there's so much. And each one of these had very specific needs for how they were engineered and set up, right? But now we've pretty much gotten through most of that. And there's been time. Hopefully, we're going to see some of this stuff settle down now. Wheel size. I mean, can we have a 31-inch wheel? Uh, <laughs> 33. You know, Someone I made it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some, yeah, somebody has. I've seen it. But um, <laughs> anyway, I, I'm encouraged that we're probably through the bulk of that at this point, which is not to say that silly stuff won't keep coming along, but I think it's if you compare that to what has happened in the road bike world, you can see that the road bike world is much more evolved and there's really not much that you can change, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the thing that I would put here as another topic, so it's the same topic, but another point. That's why I cannot understand, because let's take the example. I truly believe that you can take a bicycle road cycling, I'm talking, so a road bike from the 1960s, I would say, maybe 1970s, and you can still ride it, ride it on the road. And even if I'm taking the same, this bike or a full carbon aero bike of these days, I'm not gonna be so fast and more fast than this, me as normal Joy users. That's why I truly believe that you get these two bikes, you can still use them and you can still use them efficiently without the need of changing a new bike every two years. On the other side, if you have a mountain bike and you use a mountain bike, I don't know, for an enduro, um, yeah, in an enduro trail, and you use a bicycle from the 19... No, let's start with that, with, from 2005. And you use a bicycle from today. You can feel the difference there and you can really be faster and you can really be safer. That's what I mean. I don't understand completely in the industry the push, especially on the road bike side, of having a new bike and a new kind of technology that is still the same or material every second year instead of just pushing people, I can understand this business, but we can have also another different way of doing business, I think. Well, it's, it's when you think about people that their business is to sell things, um, there is always the, the, the need of, of the basic supply of, of something to function, like a shoe, an example. People need to have shoes on their feet so they can walk further and not get their feet damaged, right? When does that turn into fashion, right? So the basic shoe, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? You make a good shoe, lasts a long time, blah, 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 blah. And then if you wanna keep selling shoes, you either have to wait for those to wear out or you you introduce 
something else that makes something somebody want the new shoe. That's fashion, right? So how much is fashion now driving? When you when you get to a point where you have something that's well evolved, road bikes as opposed to mountain bikes. Um, really what you're left with to try and drive people to keep consuming is fashion. So how much of what's trying to be sold in road bikes right now is really just fashion? I think it's 98% fashion, but the point is that, and 2% technology, but I truly believe that of these, out of these 98%, at least 50% is pretends to be new technology. So it's not just you want to change your bike because you like the better lines and the better color, but you need to have more bike because now these brakes are safer than rim brakes. That's the thing that I don't understand. Don't, the marketing is putting down some needs instead of fashion and putting the needs, well, I mean, playing with the standards and playing with the feelings of people is a couple of steps too far. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't change rim, I mean, disc brakes for rim brakes ever again. A mountain bike. Also road biking. I mean, mm. come on. If you have, if you have carbon, carbon rims, they're not going to break. But, um, yeah, I mean, probably that, that is not the, 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 the right example, but yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely a bit of fashion, a bit of technology. A bit of the fact that uh, there are a lot of bankers out there that are willing to 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 spend 12k for a bike, and I mean, of course, uh, if people make money, by people who buy it. So if people keep buying, uh, I don't think that the problem is the industry; it's more the people. <laughs> yeah, this is a conversation, Chris. You have to know this is a conversation that we're always having, uh, Andrea yeah. and me. Uh, he base every he thinks that is the consumer point for me is the industry point but yeah it depends as well on the yeah on so many things that are so many variables that are up there but yeah it makes sense well it's what it is it's human nature so you got a human on each side of that argument right you got the consumer and you got the supplier you're both you're both functioning from human faults and human human uh, benefits right so you know you got greed involved in it you've got boredom or whatever right so people want something new because it's exciting and you got somebody over here that goes well if i can excite somebody to buy something based on it being different or new or your buddy's got it now and you got to have it too then i can sell you something i mean you can go round and round in that argument you know if if you're pulled back to a point of practicality like let's say you know what life was like just after world war ii over there in Europe, you didn't see much of this kind of fashion shit going on, right? Because it just wasn't, it wasn't sustainable at that time. You bought a pair of shoes, those things needed to last for a long time. You're not getting a fashion pair of shoes that are going to wear out in you know a month or two, right? So when, we, when we're in a place where we can afford to be wasteful, you're going to see this kind of stuff going on. Because People can. We have the, 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 the human faults to waste. <laughs> There's greed and all kinds of stuff that, you know, that fuels us, right? So it's going to happen. Um, when, when we're pressed, 
into a, a situation where we can't afford to waste so much, then you're going to see less of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of necessity. Yeah, it makes... It's a matter it makes, of necessity, right? Yes. So, it's, yeah, it makes a lot of sense until we are not kicking in sustainability in this kind of conversation. It makes a lot of sense in terms of economy, of course. Yeah. In terms of production and, uh, yeah, wasting material and everything like this, it makes a bit less of sense. But, yeah, yeah. It's, as I was saying, it's the market. We, we kind of passed <clears throat> one of the subjects uh, when we were talking about the grease, but it was also the packaging, right? Yeah. Packaging is another great thing to be talking about from a fashion standpoint. What, how, what kind of packaging do we actually need for a product that, you know, is either something that's sensible or it's completely unsensible, right? You know, you go to the grocery store and look at the incredible amount of wasteful packaging that's going on when we could be buying things in bulk or whatever, right? Do I need that fancy package with the with the little boy on there with the lucky charms or whatever it is that excites somebody to buy something? And then you buy it and you throw the packaging away, right? This is this to me this is a huge subject especially when you see the amount of plastic that's being used in packaging now and when all that stuff just goes into the landfill a lot most of which you know we talk about recycling plastic right 94% of recyclable plastic is not recycled it goes into the landfill and it becomes microplastic and all this kind of stuff right so this is another thing that i think that we need to be aware of is what what are we not paying attention to just taking for granted that goes by that ultimately turns into the the miles and miles of square kilometers of plastic floating out in the ocean mm-hmm. you know the amount of plastic bags and all this kind of thing you know so what are we doing when is that going to become an impact to us? We haven't figured out whether microplastics harmful for us to ingest or not, but we are we are eating it. Yes. You're breathing it and eating it every day now, right? At some point, if it turns into this massive carcinogen or whatever, all of a sudden people are going to start paying some attention to this. But in the meantime, you know, at least we've seen a little bit of trying to mitigate single-use plastic bags and things like at the grocery store or you don't need it take your own bag anyway i you know we we've looked i've looked at packaging along the years and we try to minimize our packaging or have the packaging make some sense either it's reusable somehow um or it's it's no impact to landfill or it's a biodegradable plastic or something, you know, we're and and to the best that we can source, right? Some of a, a lot of our headsets were never shipped in boxes. They were just shipped in a small plastic bag. And a lot of those plastic bags are quote unquote green plastic bags. They're biodegradable bags, right? But we can't source all the sizes that we use in that biodegradable material. So some are not, but some a lot of them are right um you know what how much packaging do you need if the 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 pushback that we get is from retailers oh we want a a point of sale 
display for the packaging so I can just put it on my shelf and go, look, there's that product in a nice package. It's like, okay, you know, you can't actually say, you know, here, let me explain this product to a, a person so I can minimize the packaging on it. Because ultimately, you know, you take a headset and you install it on the bike. What do you do with the packaging? Yeah, yeah, you, <laughs> you go, throw it away. Go to, go to the bike shop. <clears throat> and look at the waste stream of packaging that's coming off of putting bicycles together. It's ridiculous, right? So it's something that we've tried to focus on to try and minimize the amount of packaging that we have. But at the same time, there's these other kind of practicalities of handling that come along the way, like how do these things get stored on the inventory shelf or, you know, how does it not leak uh, a lubrication when it's being transported through the mail or what, you know, there's, there's all kinds of little things that play into that. But, you know, to make an effort to say, look at, you know, I, I want the least amount of impact for this stuff doesn't mean that I can get rid of it 100 percent, but I can certainly make stabs at trying to minimize its impact. We, we could have been selling things in, in blister pack, fancy looking packages and stuff, which a lot of bike parts come in these days. But, you know, you get you either get a box uh, or you get a plastic bag and mostly biodegradable plastic bag. Yeah, a green plastic bag. Yeah, but it makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, this comes again with your relation that the relationship that you have with your bicycle shop or where you can get the information that you need or where how you are attracted for a product is if from the fancy package or from the durability and the quality of the product. Yeah. That's the real that's the real part of marketing, nothing else. I think that, you know, when you when you talk about well you just said marketing, right? When you talk about the, the average marketing person that's focusing on attention for a product or whatever it is, there's not a whole lot of thought that's going into, you know, am I creating some kind of unsustainable waste stream here? I'm trying to get the message out. I'm trying to have my product look more attractive on the shelf than the next person's. But, you know, so I, I've had to go through years and years of, of battling back the desire to waste more based on, you know, what the packaging looks like or, what it tries to say or how bold it is or whatever in, in terms of trying to maintain some kind of sustainable footprint on this stuff. And it's not always the fanciest looking stuff. Believe me, like I said, you know, we're still selling headsets in a plastic bag. We could be selling them in a fancy box or a blister. I can tell you, Chris, that this is exactly the thing. So I, I'm in marketing. It's exactly my job. So we're talking about my th my thing. The point is that most of the time companies end with them, marketing people like me, they are not focused on the product itself because I truly believe that the first marketing tool that you have is your own product, as well as your customer service that it comes through with the product. It's everything part of it. If you can explain and have a good product, a good customer service and everything, you don't need... Uh, tons of money in uh, packaging on pop out of the shelves or from the TV or from the social media stuff. You can just explain the product and make it a bit more appealable. 
that's the, the thing. But on the other side, it's way cheaper making mass marketing than making a good and durable product. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why you need these kind of strings around in order to show that your product is fancier than the other. Maybe not better, but cooler. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's, that's all part of what we live in today. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That is exactly part of my job every day, but I know what I mean. I know what, uh, what it means, actually. <laughs> yeah. So we, you know, we, I can remember along the way, like in the 90s, uh, when we started producing the hubs, we couldn't just ship them in a plastic bag. That wasn't practical enough to protect them during transportation. So we had to, we had to do a box. So we wanted to minimize the impact of the box. And then the 90s, one of the big issues was we hadn't really gotten into the soy-based inks and stuff that they used to print on cardboard. So we basically designed up a box that was raw cardboard. We wanted it to have some interest. So we did uh, corrugation out. So it looked ribbed, which didn't have any impact on, on its cost of production or anything and then to market uh to to produce some kind of mark on it instead of printing it we wound up developing a branding iron and branded the logo into the the cardboard so so no inks used no printing process just raw cardboard and then marked with some heat and then it was designed to be a display package at the same time that you could you could open it and fold it and turn it into a display package at the same time. So you didn't have to waste anything on that either. Um, then to try and uh, distinguish one hub set from another, like a mountain from a road or whatever, we just had a single band of a printed single color printed um, thin cardboard that would band and hold the lid shut and then it would have which particular one you could mark on the end of it, which one it was. So that's, that's how we tried to do that along the way. Ultimately, when we got into uh, toy-based inks and stuff, the impact of printing stuff came down significantly so we were able to move into some printed stuff but you know you you can you you not necessarily have to sacrifice appeal mm -hmm. by by trying to do some sensible stuff makes a lot of sense well chris i think that we went through a lot of amazing topics the nerding part of marketing the nerding part of technology on technology on production and stuff now if Andrea doesn't have any other technical question, no. I would go for the last thing that I want to ask you. And what's next? We know that you got the B Corp certification, but in general, what's next on the Chris King company? Well, you know, I think the, the, the B Corp certification is, is helpful in coming up with a common vernacular <clears throat> for the the concepts of sustainability and uh, a force for a force for good in the world, right? One of the issues that we had over the years was being a company that 
believed in more sensible, sustainable, responsible stuff, it was hard to explain that to people that we would recruit to come work for us or explain that to people that were buying our product. It took a lot of explanation to do that kind of thing, to get people to understand that it wasn't just a good product that we were selling. You're getting all this other stuff that goes along with it. You're supporting a good company. Um, the idea of the B Corp helps with that in the sense that you can say that we are a B Corp and all of this stuff goes with it. In order to be a B Corp, you have to get above a certain threshold on all these different levels to be able to say that you are a B Corp. So, and, and, and we did that. What was interesting in the process of doing that was uh, they didn't, at the time, they didn't have very many, if any, actual manufacturers as B Corps. Yes, there were people that sold products and things, but most of them had their manufacturing done offshore or by somebody else. And primarily they were a design house and maybe a distributor or a warehouser or something like that. Most of their uh, measurement for determining um, acceptability as being a B Corp were based on office environment stuff. You know, how do you treat your employees? What is your office like? Are you minimizing your waste stream from your, you know, paper and all that kind of stuff? And what we found was that having been a manufacturer for decades, we had done a lot of work with our manufacturing processes. They didn't really have a way of measuring that. <laughs> so for us to come up with the total points to be able to qualify was a little bit challenging because we had done all this stuff in an area that they didn't really have measurements for that would have easily passed us, but, you know, had kind of, I don't want to say just average, but, you know, we had within our means as a small company, the kinds of, of employee benefits and so on and so forth that would score kind of at an average, right? But not necessarily give us the total score to get passed. So one of the things that we see going forward is being able to help them as a collaborator now with the manufacturing side of this. How do you how do you make sense of being a benefit corporation if you're an actual truly an actual manufacturer? What do we what do we need to be looking at? What are the kinds of things that we could do to to earn credit, so to speak? Because uh, one of the things is you retest every two years. And um, it's part of a system of doing constant improvement. So your retesting scores are partly based on how you improve your footprint, how you improve your responsibility or how you improve your benefit stuff, right? So being able to contribute from a manufacturer's side is part of how we see helping that, which of course helps the whole overall concept in the first place of having a recognized kind of standard that companies can adhere to that people can just see the the logo and stuff and go oh i want to i want to buy that one instead of this one that one's produced by a b corp right we, we are the first b corp certified company in the bike industry and i think that most there's a lot of places that that should try to do that a lot of them are going to have a pretty difficult time um 
but you know, it, it's coming, you know, we would, we would help to, to try and encourage people to do this and, and help them with what they need to do and how to do it and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, as far as, you know, the, the overall look of going into the future, you know, we're going to continue to do what we do. Um, you know, we've been trying to set an example that one, you can manufacture a product in the United States and be successful at it. You don't have to go offshore for it. I mean, how many other, how many other brands are actually being produced relatively locally? I mean, what other bike brands do you know that are being made either actually being made in America or actually being made in one of the, the EU states? Oh, that's an amazing question. I, I don't know. I think not so many. No. But there are a lot of companies that would like to say they are, and they are actually design houses, but they're still having their stuff made in Taiwan or Vietnam or, you know what I'm saying? And then how do you, how do you control the impact of that? If the bulk of what your impact is, is in the manufacturing, which it probably is, and you're having that done offshore, how do you control that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. You cannot. And and what are you contributing to in terms of whatever egregious work environments or or environmental impacts and so on and so forth are going on in those countries that they can go on in? That's one of the reasons that they're less expensive. How are you contributing to that by actually sourcing your stuff out of so this is one of the reasons that we do all of our sourcing in, from responsible countries. All of our materials, which you know goes along with them being the highest quality at the same time, but we do get this benefit and we do have this, this threshold that we want to be over that we're actually buying stuff from responsible sources, as responsible as we can. So we don't buy stainless steel from Asia. We don't buy stainless steel from Brazil for the reasons that the impact of those sources is way worse than what we're doing here. It's more expensive to buy it here. I could buy cheaper stainless from Brazil, but how much of the rainforest is getting mowed down to make that steel? You know, what kind of pollution is going on in China to produce that steel? How people are treated in their factories? I mean, you know, the black cloud over China, right? That's real, right? And where does that go? We all get to breathe that stuff ultimately. So, so, you know, we, we continue to look for how we can stay on that path, continue to improve that where we can, and afford to approve that. At the same time, try to convince people that, you know, what our product cost is still reasonable considering everything that you get with that. And, you know, we've had a reputation of being uber expensive or stupid expensive and all that kind of thing, especially in Europe because of the, the import and distribution and all that kind of stuff. Um, but quite honestly, you know, nobody's getting, well, we're certainly not getting rich on that. But what you spend your euros on our product, you're spending it. Supporting a company that does all the stuff that we do. 
that that tries to be as responsible as possible, that that sources responsibly, that treats its employees responsibly. I mean, all the labor that goes into our product, 99.9% of the labor that goes into our product is all under American work conditions, which are, I can't say they're the best in the world, but they're some of the best in the world, right? We treat our employees very fairly. We're all a family. We need. We all need each other. <laughs> no abuses going on here, right? So, and and where we source our materials is the same kind of stuff. We 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 look for whatever we consume to be sourced from responsible places. All the tools that we buy, for the most part, has to pass muster that it's made in this country. We could certainly be buying cheap tools from China. Like I go out and buy a wrench. My buyer knows if it doesn't say made in America, I got to go find it's made in America. Now, does that get us to a perfect place? Not necessarily, but it's certainly better than something that's made in a place that we know it's not good. So this goes this goes to everything that we source. It's not just the stuff that goes into the product. You know, the oils coming from America, the 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 metals coming from America, the plastic, we all of this stuff. It's all being produced in places that we know that it's there's some responsibility being taken for this stuff. Whether it comes to social responsibility with employees or environmental responsibilities with their their waste streams and their impacts and all that kind of stuff, we look for all of that stuff, and it's not easy. That's part of what the cost of producing a product that we produce. And still, if you consider all of that, you know, look at our competitors that are charging similar amounts for their products. What are they doing? Not even half of what we're doing. But they're still charging. So there's, there's more, generally more profiteering going on on our competitive products. Are, are competing our are, are competitors' products than than there is in, in what we do. Well, Chris, it really it really makes a lot of sense. It really gives me I don't know a lot of hope for listening to the passion that you're putting in these words, and also in your hope for the future. And it's not only about the B Corp, but it's about everything that it will it will come next. So yeah, it was super super. I don't know. It was a great pleasure. It was super eye opening. Uh, listen to the to your words today so yeah thanks a lot for all these nice words and good luck for the best of luck for the future thank you i mean i, I think this is part of how we look to the future is to be able to talk about this stuff it was exactly it was what we were saying at the say before we have sometimes some other companies that have different feelings of what can be done and which one is um yeah good performances a good selling and good ROI and whatever and then there is the truth that is in another place and just by talking about that we can do something and that's why actually we organize this conversation with the people in the industry like you that are doing this job since ever probably yeah long time <laughs> yeah chris thanks really thanks a lot for your time and uh yeah as i was saying best of luck for the future great thank you thanks for having me well, thanks a lot, Chris King, to keep our ears good, nice and open, as well as our mind nice and open themselves as well, in order to understand how it means, 
and what it means to have a company who makes, who has this kind of view on the environment and the production as the Chris King one has. Thanks a lot. I hope everybody out there that you enjoyed it. This super, super long chat, but I think it was worth it. And I don't know, I feel pretty, I don't know, satisfied, I would say, fulfilled on putting together this series and talking with such a huge character, amazing character in the business, in the field that is really making such an amazing job since ages. Thanks, really thanks a lot for listening to that. And remember, if you just want to help us on keep on growing and sharing the message and everything, just feel free to share, subscribe, rate, review, whatever you want to do into yeah apple podcast google podcast wherever you want to listen to that yeah share it with the friends probably this is the best thing the best thing that you can give us if you want to help us because it's always i don't know a warm feeling warm feeling like the one that we have while we are receiving your messages and feel free to message us calamaro cc broomwagon club andrea underscore malacarne or hello at calamaro.cc episode number three it's over I will talk to you next week.